G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. Here's a dangerous idea for you. You are an ape. I mean that in the kindest possible way. You are an ape. I am an ape. We homo sapiens are apes. We are evolved creatures. We are mammals. So how much of what we do, how much of what we think, how much of the way we behave and act is caused by the evolutionary imperatives that we have inherited from tens of thousands of years as homo sapiens, hundreds of thousands of years as homo sapiens, and millions, hundreds of millions of years as animals. Uh, Today's guest thinks quite a lot, um, and it's fascinating because what seems to be culturally constructed artifacts of our own civilization, whether that's differences between the sexes or our propensity for jealousy or war or tribalism or whatever it might be, may in fact lie deep inside our bones and our genes and our meat. Steve Stewart-Williams is a professor of psychology. Uh, He's the author of the books Darwin, God and the Meaning of Life, and more recently, The Ape That Understood the Universe. Please enjoy this chat with the one and only Steve Stewart-Williams. I mean, you say that, that like some differences, like the differences between the sexes are things that everybody knows except for social scientists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a funny way of putting it. Yeah. What, uh, why is that? Uh, why is that? Um, I, think the, I think the main thing is that um, there's a lot of resistance in academia, I think, to the idea that certain sex differences are products of anything other than nurture, environment, socialization. And I think the reason for that is that people worry, I think understandably worry, but um, I think ultimately misguidedly worry that accepting that there's a, there's a role for nature in shaping some average sex differences might set back the progress of uh, the women's liberation movement of feminism. And yet your claim is not that there are inferiorities. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So what, exactly right. what do we know? Yeah, what do we know about where the you know the the nature nurture balance begins and ends? Yeah, it's it's hard to put an exact line where it is. Um I do think though that there's good evidence for a strong role of of nurture and a strong role of nature as well. And the evidence for a strong role of nurture includes for instance that the magnitude of different sex differences varies somewhat from culture to culture, nation to nation, uh, and also from time to time. Uh, different periods within the same within the same culture over time, you get some variance. Um, at the same time, though, evidence for there's, there's a whole bunch of different lines of evidence that nature plays a role as well, and that it's not all just down to all just down to nurture. So the evidence, for instance, um, that. So, so some of the sex differences um, in aggression, uh, for instance, um, various other things, they, they initially appear in a kind of nascent form really early on in the developmental process. Um, a lot of them seem to appear across many different cultures. They seem to be um, they, they seem to appear often actually even when the culture tries to push against them. And the sex difference in aggression would be an, an example of that. In a, a lot of cultures, we try to clamp down on male aggression. And so we're actually uh, trying to work against that sex difference. And nonetheless, you find the same sex difference seems to be a, it seems to appear despite culture rather than because of culture. Um, another line of evidence, a lot of sex differences uh, can be traced 
to some degree to prenatal hormonal exposure. Again, the, the aggression sex difference is a good example of that. Even within sexes, prenatal hormonal exposure, uh, t- testosterone exposure specifically uh, correlates with later propensity toward aggression. Um, and then the final line of evidence, and I think probably the one that I find maybe the most persuasive, is the fact that in a lot of other species, non-human species, um, a lot of the sex differences that we see in our own species are found in, in other animals as well, animals that don't have um, culture to any anywhere right, like right. a degree that we do. And that yeah, I have, heard it, I have heard it said that, uh, you know, to the people who say that everything is just, that we are a tabula rasa and there's the, all of the differences between the sexes are culturally constructed. Yep. Uh, if you go to a, a dog breeder and you ask for a female dog and you get it home and you find that it's a male dog, you don't go, oh, well, that's fine because, uh, you know, male and female characteristics are just culturally constructed. You exactly. go, hey, I wanted exactly. a female dog. <laughs> exactly. And, <laughs> and they're not interchangeable uh, and, yeah. yeah, I mean, you make the point that in physical differences, we don't find it so hard, that if you line up every person yep. in the world in order of height, we all understand that there's going to be a bias with women being, on average, shorter. No, you know, they're not, there are going to be yep. women, there are going to be men who are shorter than some women and women who are taller than some men, but you're going to see uh, a clear difference. But when yep. it then comes to psychological characteristics, we feel uneasy about making those sorts of generalizations. Yeah. And I think there's more scope to deny the role, of, to, well, actually even just to deny that there are the sex differences in the first place. Like we can see in our everyday life with our own two eyes, we can see uh, sex differences in height and, and um, other physical features. Um, whereas it's more, it's more abstract when it comes to psychological differences. So there's more scope to deny that it is there in the first place, but then there's also more scope to sort of realistically deny that there's any significant role uh, of nature. One of the simplest ways of sort of getting our heads around some of the psychological differences between the sexes is just the experience of childbirth. Uh, This is a sort of mammalian reality that you go back to quite a few times to sort of explain the different relationships that males versus females would have towards procreation and every, all of the other ripple effects that that implies. Can you yeah. sketch that for us? Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's a, the difference in um, parental investment uh, between males and females. And in, in all mammals, the what's called the obligatory biological investment is higher for the females than for the males because it's the females that get pregnant that have to um, sustain the pregnancy, give birth, and it's the females that have to produce milk for the young. Um, at, at least in, in natural circumstances, that's no, that's no longer, uh, you know, that's, that's negotiable these days. Um, but for most of human evolutionary history, we were the same as all other mammals in that it was the females that had to provide, that had to nurse the young. Um, and that, and actually on top of all that, there's also an average behavioral difference uh, historically in terms of how much females versus males provide in terms of direct parental care. Um, and what that means, the key thing there is that the um, the maximum offspring number that females can produce is lower than the maximum number that males can produce. Uh, and that's the case in, in most mammals, but also actually right across the animal kingdom. It's a very common pattern that um, a minority of males can in principle have many, many more offspring that even the most reproductively prolific female could have. Um, and... 
my favorite way of introducing that idea to students and the like um, is to say, if you imagine that, that, that a man or any male mammal actually uh, were to have, say, four mates in a single year, potentially at the end of that time, he could have uh, four offspring. Whereas if a female uh, were to have four mates within a year, then at the end of that time, she's going to have the same number of offspring as she would if she'd only had one. Um, obviously, other, other things come into it, into uh, how many mates people might seek. Um, but what that means is that throughout the course of our evolutionary history, there would have been a stronger pressure, selection pressure on males as opposed to females for a desire for multiple partners, a, a high sex drive, and that kind of thing, just because that maximum offspring number uh, is higher for males than females. So I, I have friends who say that it's a bit of a myth that men are hornier than women and actually women have a sublimated sense of sexuality and once they're liberated from patriarchal ways of thinking, they're actually just as as into sex with multiple partners as men are. Um, yeah. What do you make of that? Um, well, I don't think it's I don't think it's right, but I do think in some cases when people make that argument, I think they're actually reacting to maybe a slightly uh, mistaken understanding of what the claim is, because the claim isn't that men have a really really high sex drive and women don't. They're just not really interested in sex. Men are really really interested, interested in multiple partners. Um, women are not. It's it's a much smaller sex difference than that. It's a difference in degree rather than kind. So. Um, and not, and not only that, it's, we're also talking about overlapping distributions, um, just, just that the average is higher for males than females, but lots of variation in both sexes. It's exactly the same as the height sex difference, actually. Lots of variation within both sexes and lots of overlap between the two sexes. Um, so I think in some cases, people, the claim gets people's backs up because they think it's, it's making a more polarized claim. Men are like this and women are like that. Um, I think that there is a lot of evidence that there is this, this average sex difference, though, um, and that is not the case that women deep down are just like men and that if they were just, um, if we could take off uh, patriarchal uh, barriers and the like, that men and women would be interchangeable in the sexuality department. Uh, lots of evidence, including the fact that you find these same sex differences across every culture that we have good data for. There are no cultures, for instance, uh, where you find that actually rather than men being more interested in pornography than women, that actually women are the main consumers of pornography. No cultures where um, women pay men for sex much more often than the reverse. Um, it just you, you find the same pattern across culture after culture. You have a similar pattern in um, other species as well. Other species where the maximum offspring number is higher for males than females, same pattern. Um, and it's not, not that females are not interested in sex. I think maybe a better way to capture it would be to say that they, they're, they're choosy, choosier about their um, casual sexual partners in, in particular. So, and actually, so, so I've been saying, so, so women aren't so different uh, from men, but also let me, let me rein in what I said about men. I don't want to give the impression that men are only interested in short-term sex and multiple partners. Um, I think we're quite atypical, actually, as a species, in that we typically form long-term pair bonds, and um, whereas most male mammals are deadbeat dads and have nothing to do with the kids and don't know who the kids are, like, we're not like that. Like that that's a rarity in our species. Um, most, mammal, uh, most uh, males in most cultures do invest in the kids as well. We're, we have a strong paternal streak. Um, so we're not just horn dogs or whatever. Um, and what, what, would be the, what would be the evolutionary imperative for that? Why wouldn't we just yeah. be better off from the genes perspective going out and sowing our wild oats as much as possible? 
Um, I think that the the main reason is that we have these big brains, and big brains um, had a number of consequences in terms of how much parental investment was needed for kids. So um, when our offspring are born, they're extremely dependent, much more so than than is the case for many mammalian species. Very very dependent for several years, and then they need input. They're not they're not what biologists call nutritionally independent until 18 to 20 years of age, even, even in a traditional society. So they need tons and tons of investment. And whereas in, in most other apes, the females alone um, can provide all the investment that the kid needs, that's not the case in our species. So I think what's happened is because our offspring are so expensive um, and require so much care, we've evolved various forms of what's called alloy maternal care, so that's care from individuals other than the mother. That includes like grandparents and siblings and, and unrelated friends, but it also often includes males. And because our offspring need so much investment, the fitness payoff of forming pair bonds, falling in love, uh, falling in love in, in effect with a kid and wanting to invest in the kid, the payoff of doing that was much greater for males in our species and somewhat reduced the extent to which uh, males just wanted to uh, sow their wild oats. And so these sex differences, just spell out for us the mechanism of natural selection here so it's clearer. The, let's yep. hypothesize that there's a a type of man who is slightly less enthusiastic about having multiple partners and a type of woman yep. who is slightly more enthusiastic. What are the consequences for each of those candidates that nudge the population as a whole in one direction or another? Um. Well, the consequence is that that male who was slightly more toward seeking multiple mates potentially could have more offspring, and the male offspring would then inherit that tendency. So that tendency would slowly, go, in effect, go viral in the gene pool. It, become it would more propagate and more through the population, right? Yep, yep, exactly. Um, for the female, on the other hand, um, there would be a stronger selection instead of for uh, multiple mates for, for choosiness about mates. Like because the ceiling number of offspring that females could have uh, is lower than that for the males. Um, females' best bet for maximizing the, the number of surviving offspring that they have is to make be- better choices rather than seeking more mates, seek uh, better mates. And mates is, is the operative yeah. question there that, about the surviving offspring? Is that why I'm trying to get my head around like what's the downside for the woman in our, you know, pre-ancestry in the, on the savannah for being really uh, promiscuous as well. Yes, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of energy in having lots of babies, but yep. uh, is the suggestion that if she's having a baby every year, those babies are less likely to survive than if she only has one baby every four well, years? It's a few things actually, but um, yeah, so so I think in natural environment, natural environment it's quite difficult to have one baby a year and, and three or f- one every three or four years is much more sustainable. Um, but I'm not sure that feeds so much into the, the sex difference and interest in casual sex and, and multiple partners. So I think that's more about the fact that it, do- it just doesn't pay off as much as it does for males in such an obvious way. There are actually other ways in which it, it might do. Um, it, it, there are certain ways, for instance, um, uh, if a female has a partner who is infertile or the couple is kind of infertile together, that's one reason why seeking multiple mates might be good. Um, having multiple mates means that you might have several uh, investing, um, 
males. Um, there are various reasons why it is, it is possible that it, there would be some advantage for, for more than just one mate at a time. Um, but this, the payoff is not so great, and therefore it's, it's pulled away further. The, the distribution has been uh, pushed up further for males than for females. Right, I see. Yes, because yeah. if you are a woman who has a propensity to have lots of sex, then the best that you're going to be able to do is that one baby a year or whatever it might be and yep. those are going to be poorly cared for children because yep. it's going to be chaos in your life. And yep. Yep. You, you're exactly. likely to die during childbirth and all those other things that men don't have to yep. endure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. women tend not to have to anymore but just through most of human evolutionary history they did and the idea is that that is when these tendencies were forged. Well, you just pointed to one common criticism of evolutionary biology which is Yes, this all may have been relevant back on the savannah, but you know the reason why I am aroused by pornography today is a totally different context. There are all kinds of cultural cues. There's all kinds of free will that comes into play. I'm not just being driven by uh, banal, mundane evolutionary forces. There, are, we do all kinds of things that our evolution doesn't. Uh, drive us to do. It, evolution had no say in why we went to the moon or why we invent cars or whatever it might be so what relevance is there really haven't we outgrown it well i agree that um in lots of ways uh, like it's not all down to banal um evolutionary pressures and that kind of thing so there are cultural pressures that come in and shape our behavior as well and i think really just the question is is it just down to those cultural factors um and in terms of whether we've um outgrown it i think um we might have, but we still might have the imprint from these past selection pressures. So, like, if, if some folks decide, okay, I, I, I don't want to have any kids in my life. I'm happy um, not having kids, so I'm going to be child-free. In a certain sense, you could say that, and that's uh, since they, they've outgrown the need for, for genitals and for reproductive functions. But they still have them because in our evolutionary history, those things evolved. Um, and we don't have any problem with that when, when it comes to physical things like genitals and, and wombs and the like. Um, but I just think that the same is true of certain psychological tendencies as well, is that even if we have, in a certain sense, outgrown them, we do still have a push uh, from our genes, genes that were uh, pieced together in the human genome from earlier selection pressures. If our genes are driving us to propagate them into the next species, why don't more men go to sperm banks and try to spread their seed as far as they can. Yeah, well, well, if we'd evolved to consciously and deliberately try to have as many offspring as we possibly could, then we probably would do that, right? That, that would be a good way to do it. But we haven't evolved to think, okay, I want, I want as many of my genes as possible to go into future generations and in my current environment, completely evolutionarily unprecedented environment, that'd be the best way to do it. Um, instead, uh, we've just got a bunch of motivations and desires and drives that typically, at least in, 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 um, throughout most of our evolutionary history, led us to act in ways as if that's what we were thinking when we weren't actually thinking about that at all. Uh, any more than any other animal is thinking about, oh, I need to pass my genes on, so I'm going to have sex with as many with, with this, this individual here. Um, other animals aren't thinking about that. We, we didn't evolve to think about that either. We just have certain desires that, that push around our behavior, even today, even in a very different world. And why do you think we have uh, non-reproductive fetishes? Why do you think homosexuality exists? Why do you think people get off on feet or chairs or whatever? Like, what's that all about? No idea. 
Um, I, I don't think that it can, any of those things can easily be traced to evolution, though. Um, I, I really don't have a clue with things like foot fetishes, where they might come in. Um, so I don't think they're, they're adaptations or anything like that. I think that um, we, uh, I guess my best guess would be that we have quite a flexible sexual nature and we do have a capacity to learn. Like not everything's pre-programmed. We do have a capacity to learn uh, to find certain things attractive and maybe with feet fetishes, fetishes um, that capacity just happen to focus on something that is sort of not obviously reproductively relevant. Um, and with homosexuality, and I suppose it yeah. may be the case that, well, just to sort of speculate uh, from a layperson's perspective, it may be the case that if you were to turn down the dial of the libido to such an extent that you erased uh, aberrations like foot fetishes, then you would also uh, lower the propensity to spread your seed in useful reproductive ways as well. Maybe fetishes and kinks just come along for the ride if you hit the right setting of yeah. uh, having a high, high enough libido to be optimal about spreading your genes. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that's quite possibly the case. It's just a kind of byproduct of having a high sex drive. And uh, yeah, and so yeah. You, then you were going to say homosexuality. Is there, yeah. is there a similar explanation for that? Um, it's a, yeah, a similar kind of one. I think though... Um, Similar in the sense, like I don't think that homosexuality is an adaptation. I think um, so. So it has been argued. There, there was one argument, for instance, that, that it is an adaptation shaped by what's called kin selection, and the idea there is that um, kin selection. Kin, kin selection. Yeah. I'm, I'm just correcting your uh, your terrible New Zealand accent, <laughs> but yes, kin. kin yeah. Kin, so kin selection. Explain what kin what kin selection uh, is. Um, so kin selection. So so. Usual natural selection um, is when a trait is selected because it boosts the, the survival or the number of offspring of the individual with that trait. Kin selection is when a trait is selected because it boosts the survival and the number of offspring of genetic relatives of the trait. So um, a tendency to, to care for one's offspring, to care for siblings, nieces and nephews and that kind of thing. And the argument that um, E.O. Wilson and several other people made uh, was that that may, maybe homosexuality is, is a product of kin selection and that some individuals uh, boost their, what's called their inclusive fitness, so their overall fitness. The, that means like the, the extent to which their genes go forward to the future generations by instead of having offspring of their own, they instead care for the offspring of siblings. So in other words, nieces and nephews. Um, and it, it makes sense. It's got a logic to it. Uh, it doesn't seem that's th the case, though. It doesn't seem that um, they do that. That gay people do disproportionately look after nieces and nephews compared to non-gay people. So I yeah, and the probably, amount that they would have to do it would be enormous. I mean, yeah, Richard exactly. Dawkins has made the point that yeah, you'd have to be twice. You know, the 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 nieces and nephews would have to be more than twice as likely to survive than those who didn't have gay uncles exactly. because only half of the genes from the gay uncle are in the child. So yeah. if we rule out that as, as not a very plausible explanation, what are we left with? Um, we are left with uh, that it's probably, probably a non-adaptive byproduct of some sort. So it's partly down to genes. Um, so same-sex sexual orientation is partly um, heritable. Um, and then, so the question is, how do those genes stay in the gene pool? And just um, explain heritable yeah. there, because a lot of people will hear that yeah. and go, well, hang on, does that mean that gay people are more likely to have gay kids? But that's not what heritable means. Uh, no, no, it just means... It so, doesn't mean inherited 
it doesn't mean that I have you have the same. Uh, uh, I'm forgetting the, my genetic terminology, but like yeah. the same presentation of uh, of the, phenotype. Um, the same phenotype. Thank yeah. you very much. The same phenotype as the parent. No, no, indeed. Um, but it, it does mean that it's, it's partially determined by genes. So a trait is heritable to the extent that individual differences um, and, and whatever trait it is are partly due to individual differences in the genes that people have. Um, so, the, the, so there are some genes that do somewhat increase the likelihood of somebody having same-sex sexual orientation. Um, and, and Why would question, those genes get weeded out of the population? Yeah. That's the mystery, right? Like, why wouldn't they? And a bunch of, I don't think it's known for, for certain, but there are a bunch of interesting ideas about why it is. Um, one of which is, so if you find those genes in an individual who doesn't happen to actually develop a same-sex sexual orientation, um, there's some speculation that those individuals are actually have higher fertility and more offspring um, with those genes to a sufficient degree that it, it is a counterbalance to uh, the fact that individuals who do develop a same-sex sexual orientation are are likely to have fewer offspring. Um, But I'm not sure we really know. And also, it's not completely down to genes. So there's a a non-genetic component as well. Um, And one idea about what might uh, be contributing there, have you heard of it? It's called the the birth order effect? Yeah, Yeah. explain it. So the idea is that... um, Having okay, so the original idea anyway, it's it's got a bit messy actually over the years. But the original idea applies to men specifically, as the more older brothers an individual has, the greater their chance of um, of being gay. Um, and this and, is not a cultural effect because it even withstands ch- children who are adopted, right? Yep. So it has. So if the if the fourth son is adopted at birth, they still show the higher likelihood of being gay even if they're the eldest in the new foster family which implies that there's something in utero that's going on yeah exactly so it seems to be it's it's a biological effect but a non-genetic biological effect um and and i think that even though the effect's been demonstrated quite uh plausibly i think we're not completely sure what creates the effect but the main idea is that it's an immune system response and that the mother's um, immune system over subsequent pregnancies with males specifically, um, it starts to the immune system starts to re- react to the to the male fetuses. Um, uh, somebody put it once like a de- developing a, an allergy to maleness, and right. and somehow um, that affects the masculine masculinization of the brain, not in general, but it's specifically related to sexual orientation and yeah. Fascinating. It is fascinating, um, yeah. So let's talk about some of the psychological differences that there might be between yeah. men and women then uh, as well. You know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about getting more women into STEM, um, that we all know stories like the James Damore, the Google engineer who was fired for after having been invited to contribute to the question of how to get women more involved in STEM, wrote, wrote an essay that proposed that maybe females are, are less interested in in such things uh, and was fired for articulating that point of view. There are various studies whose credibility I I don't know where you get a thousand men in a room and a thousand women in another room and you say to each of them, do you want to spend your day taking apart a machine and putting the widgets back together or coaching a family that's having problems uh, through their emotional issues and more women tend to go for the latter and more men tend to go for the former um, there are those who'll say that that's because we live in a 
culture that encourages people to think that way. But what would there be an evolutionary explanation for those sorts of differences? Uh, possibly an evolution could impinge on those things. I think um, so. There's like a real uh, minefield of an area. So um, I think the first thing to say going into this area um, is that. Like it's it's not necessarily the case, depending on how you define STEM, it's not necessarily the case that there are more men than women in STEM. If you include, for instance, the health sciences, um, it's actually reasonably even, especially among, uh, you know, young, younger generations, pretty even overall. So it's not so much that just, and there are vastly more yeah. women uh, in young women in going into health science. Than exactly. Males. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so rather than being, rather than the difference to be explained being, Men do STEM and women don't. It's more more men than women go into certain STEM fields. More women than men go into others. And um, I mean, it is, but yeah. it is consistent with uh, the preconception that the fields of STEM that men would be more interested in would be the engineering widget yep. side, and that women would be yep. more interested in the health science side, which has more to do with human beings. Yeah, exactly. Uh, rather than widgets. Yeah, exactly. So, so the cliche still stands. The cliche does still stand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then the usual explanations for those differences, uh, the ones that are emphasised the most, are discrimination and socialisation. And um, and I think discrimination and socialisation are certainly part of the story. But I do think, uh, on top of that, though. There is what you say as well. There do seem to be, for whatever reason, there do seem to be average sex differences in interest in objects, widgets, gadgets, and things. So, so more men than women are interested in that cluster of stuff. Um, and then interest in people and working with people and, and helping people. Both sexes are pretty interested in that, but on average, women seem to be more interested. And I think um, it's quite plausible that that is part of the story in determining um, the fact that more men go in one direction, more women go in other directions. And, and in fact, it's not just plausible. I think it would be surprising given that there are those differences if that weren't part of the explanation for the choices that people make. Right, but how does 100,000 years on the savannah influence that? Uh, I'm not, no, I'm not too sure. So I think there's pretty good evidence that, first of all, that these differences do exist. Uh, I think the, the research is pretty strong on that count. And there's also pretty good evidence that it's not 100% down to learning. I think there does seem to be an innate push as well. But unlike sex differences and, and aggression and sexuality, where we have, we have precedents for that in other, other species and we have really, really strong theories in evolutionary biology that explain those differences, I think there's a bit of a question mark over why it might be that the people versus things sex difference evolved. Some ideas have been put forward, but I don't, I don't think that they're... Um, but I find any click into place in the same way that the evolutionary explanation for sexuality and, and aggression does click into place. What are some of the explanations proposed? The, the explanation, well, I guess the more plausible one is the explanation for women's greater interest in people. Um, and people have tied that to two main things. One is, is motherhood. So the fact that um, female mammals in general are more involved with offspring could create a selection pressure for a stronger interest in and ability to, to, to read people and, and greater social social skills, basically, um, for in that role with uh, mother and, the mother and child bond. Um, and also another argument is that uh, throughout most of the course of our evolutionary history, women were more likely than men to leave the natal group and to set up shop with 
with the husband's natal group. So the husband would stay with his family um, and, and the woman would move to his kin group more often than the reverse. Not a massive difference. I think it's like two-thirds of the time it was that way perhaps versus a third of the time the other way around or something different. But enough that the argument goes there was a stronger selection pressure on women to have the social acumen to be able to get on with unrelated um, other women in particular, but, but unrelated individuals in, in general. Right. And then the, the object, um, the, the argument for the sex difference in objects relates to uh, tool use, specifically in the context of, of hunting and warfare. So hunting, mainly done by men. Some of it was done by women, but mainly by men. So the tools used for hunting were built more by by men than by women and, and used more by them. Um, and likewise, uh, weapons for for warfare as well. And that all seems to me, okay, maybe could be true, but I, I just don't, I don't know. Wouldn't, wouldn't want to bet my life savings on those being the, <laughs> yeah, right, the true right. explanations. Um, and you also write about uh, about jealousy and sexual jealousy and yep. possessiveness between people. There's a long-running uh, anthropological argument about whether this is uh, a cultural artifact of modern Western male-dominated societies. Uh, Margaret Mead famously went to the Pacific and found that, you know, there were these societies that were free from uh, uh, sexual jealousy, supposedly. She found this and was later... Uh, brought into question, um, to what extent are we hardwired to be jealous? Um, well, I, I think to some extent we are. I do think that it's not just an invention of culture. And I think actually it might have been your, one of your countrymen, uh, Derek Freeman, I think, was, 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 yeah, was one of the people who… That's true, yes. Yeah, yeah, claimed to… In fact, David the, Williamson wrote a, wrote a play about that Oh, oh really? Uh, one of our greatest playwright. Yeah, it was called Heretic. Oh, the, oh I did not know that. Interesting. Oh. I'll, have to, I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so that claim claims along the lines of what Margaret Mead, Mead said, um, that there are some idyllic cultures where people are immune from from jealousy and everyone just shares and shares alike and not not too not too fast if the person a person that they're involved with gets involved with somebody else. Um, that's been claimed. Margaret Mead claimed that. Various other people have claimed that. Most of the time, however, when you look more closely at the claims, that seems not to be the case. So if you look, for instance, at um, Rates of the, like like the causes of domestic abuse and the causes of spousal homicide and that kind of ugly stuff, you do find that even in those societies where supposedly, according to Westerners, idyllic paradises with no sexual jealousy, sexual jealousy is, is the major cause of, of domestic abuse and spousal uh, homicide in those cultures. And what's the evolutionary reason for that? Um, the evolutionary reason... Um, so for, for both sexes, there's some overlap for both sexes. So, um, so, so you, you know, I mentioned that we, we evolved to form pair bonds and those are primarily like a context for looking after kids. Um, the fact that we evolved to form pair bonds means that pair bonds were useful for males and females. We evolved to fall in love with each other because it was useful for both of us. Um, and jealousy, I guess, so like love is like the carrot that entices people into relationships. Jealousy is like the stick where you protect um, you protect a pair bond from, you know, the, the good-looking, good-looking next-door neighbour or whatever else. Some potential threats to the pair bond, um, threats to, in the sense of like your mate being poached away from you. Um, so I think that's a reason for both sexes to have um, to have jealousy to preserve the pair bond. There's also a reason that's unique to uh, males only, uh, and that's the fact that in species 
like, like mammals, you have um, internal fertilization. And where you have internal fertilization, there's a major sexual asymmetry and the likelihood that you're going to end up looking after your own offspring. So like uh, the way I put it in the book, and, and I borrowed this, this is the way uh, David Buss likes to put it. David Buss, the evolutionary psychologist, he points out that there's never been a woman in the history of the world who's given birth and then thought, wait a minute, how do I know that this is my kid and not some other woman's kid? Like that's never happened. Um, for men, on the other hand, if, if a man's partner um, gives birth to a kid, it's probably his kid. Odds are that it is, but there's always some possibility that it might not be. And if it's not, if it, if it happens to be the good-looking next-door neighbor's kid, then he's going to be uh, investing his time and energy into putting forward the genes of right. someone other than himself. And so that's so males who had a problem with their female partners possibly cheating on them yep. tended to do better. Exactly. Than ones who thought it, who were cool with it. Exactly. Than ones who just in terms of, from a gene side point of view, they tend exactly to pass right. their genes on yep. more. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So they they pass their genes on more than than a guy who thinks, um, well, I'm an enlightened guy, and that's just just fine with me. If I don't mind if my partner sleeps with other people. Pardon the interruption. I just want to tell you about a video uh, that I want you to check out. It features the one and only Chuck Norris. You remember Chuck Norris? The man's in his eighties. And, uh, you know, I'm no spring chicken. Nonetheless, I care about my health. I want to live a long time. I want to, uh, want to be healthy. I don't always get as many fruits and vegetables and herbs that are supposed to increase my energy levels in my own diet. So I saw this video that Chuck Norris has made. He's kicking butt. He's uh, working out. He's staying active. He has heaps of energy left over for his grandkids and so on. And he says that he, he is achieving all this by making one single change. And he feels like he's in his 50s. Go to mymorningkick.com slash Josh and watch Chuck Norris's video right now. That's mymorningkick.com slash Josh, M-Y-M-O-R-N-I-N-G-K-I-C-K dot com slash Josh. So how does it feel to you to to be witnessing, I guess, over the past 10 years, the the ructions in what it means to be male and the sort of, I guess, eruptions of toxic masculinity in forms like Andrew Tate and like visions of, you know, hyper-sexist, hyper-misogynistic masculinity. Do you look at that through the, your lens as an evolutionary biologist and, and go, like, what do, you, what do you make of that? Yeah, um, so a lot of that stuff, is, it's easy enough to sort of trace it to evolved um, tendencies, but but of course the fact that something has evolved doesn't mean that it's good. And I think one of the great accomplishments of civilization has been to tame the bad side of human nature to a great extent, um, and especially male nature and aspects of uh, things that are more common in males and females, like aggression. Um, I think we have really succeeded in um, taming those to a great extent, as you know, Stephen Pinker has documented that. And I think that's the overall trend. And then the kind of stuff you're talking about is, I guess, a bit of a, a retroactive tendency within that overall trend of um, man, man, managing to push down these levels. And, mm. and so, yeah, I think that it's, it's not good. It's bad stuff, even if it could be traced to human nature or as, as maybe sort of um, emphasizing a side of human nature. Because human nature is not just necessarily exactly going to be at, at one 
any trait like aggression is not going to be at one particular volume. Culture can turn up the volume on it or turn down. And overall, we've been turning it down. But the Andrew Tates of the world, I think, can turn up some of the ugly sides of mm. uh, the ugly potentialities in human nature. I mean, as, as someone who's a journalist and, and not a scientist and who is interested in the kind of sociology of all this, I am interested in what provokes uh, perverse backlashes. And when you said, you know, this idea that I'm an enlightened guy, I'm free from sexual jealousy, I am cool with my female partners doing whatever it is that they, they want to do, uh, you know, I'm on board the, the train of whatever it is that is going to get me the... I guess the highest status virtue signaling to my female colleagues, which I think there's a whole other thing going on of like the, the wolf in sheep's clothing component of particularly sensitive new age guys who, who loudly profess how, um, how free they are from the impulses that you're talking about, that that may have provoked this backlash of people saying, well, hang on a second, that's not, right or natural or that's not me or these guys are full of shit or whatever whatever it might be maybe that creates a space for it yeah it it could well i think that's entirely plausible um yeah and and maybe some of the negativity that is directed toward males i think quite plausibly you know some some young guys might just think well screw you Mm. to the world and then be open to you know the negative influences of, the, of those kinds. I think that yeah. probably contrib- plausibly contributes as well. What do we know about the instinct to tribalism? Well, I think that that is also something that sadly is part of human nature. Um, and one line of evidence for that is that you find it in, in many species. And many species that live in groups seem to have kind of built-in in-group, out-group biases. And even the, uh, there's this really interesting paper, um, one of my favorite papers actually, that um, points out that even that the neurophysiology underpinning in-group, in out-group biases are quite common to vertebrates in general. So it seems to be quite a deep-seated tendency. I, I also vertebrates? Think, yeah. Not just mammals? Not just mammals, yeah. yeah like fish have in-groups? Um, I'm not sure about fish. Um, Lizards? I think it's a group, yeah, group living, uh, group living lizards. Um, perhaps um, let me think. Um, group living birds as well. I think like colonial birds. Yeah. Mm. So I think it is. It's really deep seated. Um, and but, is that, does yeah. that come back to a concept of kin selection or something? Like what's I think that? What's the evolutionary reason? I think it's beyond that. I think it's because because it, our, our tribe. Is, is broader than just the kin group. I think it also embraces uh, unrelated individuals. Um, so I think well, it, we're like, all related in a tribe, aren't we? True, I true, mean, but but not just closely related, but um, but but individuals who are distantly enough related that they are, are non-related. Uh, they're they're non relatives Right, that there wouldn't be a genetic Im- imperative for them to help each other. Yeah, exactly. Right. I think it's more a, a cooperative kind of thing. Like they're they're all in this together and they cooperate with each other. Um, which is nice within the group, and group cooperation is nice, but it also often, um, the sort of dark flip side of that is negativity toward other groups and a propensity toward aggression for other groups. And I think that's another thing, though, that we have managed to tame with culture to, to quite some degree. Not completely, of course, and keep having flare-ups of, of in-group, out-group biases and, and nationalism, et cetera. Um, but I do just think that the idea that we think other groups matter as much as, as our own group 
and I happen to be born in this nation, but other nations are not inferior. All those kind of ideas, I think, don't come naturally to us, but culture has kind of pushed us uh, in that direction. Mm. But what does come naturally to us is, I can't remember exactly how you articulate the distinction, but a, a tendency to be generous and uh, and inclusive towards our own kind and yep. then to sharply demarcate the boundary between us and them and be vicious and hostile towards the other. How does that dynamic work? Um, well, like I think that's right. And I think, I guess it's not automatic hatred. I think probably it's, it's wariness. But um, neighbouring tribes, I think, were... were Often quite hostile to each to one another throughout the course of our evolution, and people had to be very very careful of them. And so I think just we have an evolved wariness and just uh, an evolved tendency to just very very easily divide the world into us and them, and decide that us is great and superior, and them, you know, they're they're bad and inferior, and they're out to get us. And so we need to defend ourselves. And meanwhile, they have the same propensity; they're thinking the same thing that that they're great and that. Um, the other side is the bad side and that they're plotting against them um, and that they need to protect themselves from that. And, are you and thinking, that, tendency, yeah. that tendency worked in our evolutionary history because of scarce resources and there wasn't – because you can imagine a, a universe of, of infinite resources in which that is a dysfunctional characteristic and you'd be better off just yep. being nice to everybody. Yep. Um, I think it probably did, I guess, I guess scarce resources, but I guess just the fact that um, – so, so yeah, there are like tribes even today will sometimes invade other tribes to take resources, but actually also to take females. So, so groups of males will sometimes um, take hostage females. Uh, a lot of it apparently is, is about that. And um, mm. yeah, so it's, so in a world where resources are scarce and other groups are potentially dangerous, I think it was probably adaptive on average, even if not in every case. Like, like I do take your point that having that mindset would sometimes provoke conflicts that wouldn't necessarily have happened otherwise and could lead individuals to lose their lives, et cetera. But I guess, mm. I guess the thing is that it must have been useful enough on average to have uh, persisted. Yes, and it's very easy to stoke, as we can see today, exactly. not, just yeah. in, not just in the culture wars in our own navel-gazing countries but also writ large in Russia and Ukraine and so many other places. Exactly, yeah. And I was going to ask actually, yeah. I, was, I was wondering, so what, what sort of stuff do you have on your mind when you're, when you're asking about those? Is, is it things like Yeah, I was thinking yeah. about Russia and Ukraine but yeah. I was also thinking on a more micro level at the um, deterioration of a sense of universalism uh, in Western societies, I think, uh, yeah. the, both the rise of the far right and also the descent of the left into a much more identitarian uh, outlook and a, a much less universalist um, vision of, uh, of common, uh, common humanity for everybody, but yeah. more about like, this, this is my tribe, this is a tribe that's been historically persecuted, yeah. uh, now it's our time to get some kind of comeuppance. Uh, you know, it's, it's very much more a, a finite pie that's being divided at the moment culturally I, yeah. I think rather than the uh, the universalism of uh, of the left in the 20th century I think you're right and I think that it's uh, that overall it's a real shame because I think that um that universalism was a real accomplishment of culture and going against some of the, the worst angels of our nature and um mm. it, it was obviously a fragile well, two thing. white males would say that wouldn't <laughs> we <laughs> exactly so I suppose that we should we should add that 
some of the issues that are being raised are perfectly legitimate. And yeah. so I guess the question is like, how can we reconcile that universalism with giving due consideration to yeah. some of yeah, the specific exactly. problems that have faced? Uh, yeah, and asking whether or not the current trends actually do achieve the, their stated goals. I mean, I, I've always just tried to keep in my mind Martin Luther King and Gandhi yeah. <laughs> and Nelson Mandela and try to think of where they were shooting. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, not to big note myself, I think my worldview is closer to where they were aiming for than the worldview of many of the people who claim to be on the side of social justice today. I agree, and me too. I agree. Those three are great, great mm. individuals, and I much prefer their way of approaching it. One um, one fascinating way that you start the book is by is by writing as if you were an alien uh, coming down to planet Earth and observing Homo sapiens. Um, where did you get that conceit from? And can you just summarise for us the, I guess, the gist? Yeah, where I got it from, I can't remember. I've, I have seen it around the place here and there. People have done it in books, I guess, a little bit of it here and there. So I just had in mind in my old notes somewhere, maybe this would be a fun way to um, start a book. Um, and, yeah, so the basic idea is that an alien comes down to the planet. Uh, the alien is from Beetlejuice 3, and it's an alien from a very different species than our own. It doesn't have males and females. It doesn't doesn't fall in love. It doesn't get jealous. Um it doesn't, doesn't have children, so it doesn't have special relationships with its children. It doesn't listen to music, doesn't have art, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know what it does have, but, but all that stuff it doesn't have. Um, and then it comes to our planet, encounters this, this strange being, these, these human beings, and we're just a complete mystery to it. So for some reason, we, we do have males and females, and most people are uh, either of one, one type or the other. Um, the, the males and females differ from each other on average. They don't differ as much, though, as, as a lot of the other animals that the alien spots, like gorillas and orangutans and elephant seals. Um, we fall in love with each other. We get jealous when the person that we're in love with gets involved with someone else. That's generally the case. Um, we, we hypnotize ourselves with pitch, like rhythmical pitches of different um, durations, um, entertain ourselves with moving flickering lights on, on two-dimensional screens, et cetera, et cetera. And the aliens just mystified. And it's basically just um, – it's two things. It's one, one, I just find it quite amusing to, to play with that thought experiment. Uh, and the other is just a, it's a way to introduce the questions that I try to tackle in the book. Um, some of which – so the ones we've been talking about so far um, have involved evolutionary theory applied to biology. Um, I'm not sure how much we've mentioned this already. I think maybe we haven't, but – but I also, at, toward the end of the book, I take evolutionary principles and try to apply them to culture instead. And um, between the two, yeah, I think. Uh, that yeah. was that was the the next chapter of this conversation. Okay. Um, so let's talk about culture. Yeah, sure. th- because I mean, one of the points that you make in that initial passage is about how weird it is that we spend so much of our lives looking at stories of other made up stories that we know are made up of other people of other fictitious characters doing things and acting out our struggles and we listen to music and we talk. We spend an enormous amount of time just opening this hole in our face and barking noises at each other. Um, And this is we are are alone amongst the animal kingdom in spending our time this way. Why? Well, it's weird, isn't it? Um, I think so. so Some people argue that things like music and art and uh, storytelling and that kind of thing are adaptations. And I kind of think, my, my own view is that they're not. I think they're cultural inventions. I think 
the adaptation, I think, I think we did evolve our, like our abstract intelligence that human beings have. We have more of it than any other species. So our, our big brains, um, the reason that we have allomaternal care and paternal care, there's big brains and intelligence and involve, uh, evolving this intelligence and, and also our cultural capacity. So our capacity to learn from each other, um, pass on culture down the generations, it kind of became an open system. And I think in doing that, we managed to just invent novel, unique, and evolutionarily non, non-adaptive, just, just not, not adaptive um, ways to amuse ourselves, ways to stimulate our brains in ways that we just happen to find enjoyable. So I think that's what music is for the most part. It's just um, some a trick we've invented to amuse ourselves. I think stories. Um, they, they push evolved buttons, so we are interested in other people. We pay a lot of attention to um, this, this person is attracted to that person and, and those two, they're, they're in love and this person's cheating on that person and these two hate each other and they're going to fight, that kind of thing. We, we've evolved an interest in that kind of thing in real life. But stories can, can piggyback on that and stories can be interesting um, and they can be stimulating because we have that evolved interest and we find, found a way with our stories to... Um, yeah, to to amuse ourselves, basically. In addition to amusing ourselves, we also love understanding things uh, and only fairly recently really have we gotten good at that in a rigorous way. Since the Enlightenment, have we figured out systems of understanding the world that were more than just scattershot um, but, you know, led us towards incredible breakthroughs. I mentioned landing on the moon. Uh, it's no small feat in it's a couple incredible. hundred years to go from not really understanding that the planet is even a planet to yeah. being able to land on the moon. Uh, so something went right with the scientific revolution. What's the basis of that? I mean, that seems like we've evolved into becoming gods. I know. It's, it's, it's incredible, right? It's absolutely unbelievable that we got to the moon, let alone all the other stuff we're doing. Uh, AI, I didn't even mention AI in the book uh, because – it was, it was only a few years ago that I wrote the book, but already that's just jumped ahead massively. Yeah, and I think so. We do seem to have the, we have an interest in how things work and that kind of thing. And I think I think that probably um, throughout most of our evolutionary history, that was that was useful just within the context of everyday life and figuring out how to make a trap that works and how to uh, process food in a way that gets rid of poison and makes it uh, easier to eat and digest. Things like that, I think we did get right. But we just evolved this open-ended interest that we basically got wrong most of the time outside the scope of everyday life. Like you say, until recently, when suddenly we just sort of figured out this, the scientific method and how to get it right, even in areas outside everyday life. And then it just completely came off the leash and uh, just completely went well, well beyond what our, what our observing alien would expect for, from an intelligent but not you can imagine a vastly more intelligent species. The alien is a vastly more intelligent species. Like we're we're not cognitively impressive at all to this alien, and yet somehow we've gone to the moon and we've, we've done all these other things. And that's because. And how does the evolutionary biologist explain that drive? How does the evolutionary biologist explain Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos being infatuated with going to space? Is this that we evolved to like tools? Um, I suppose it could be. I think probably uh, I would probably explain it in more general terms of just um, an evolved tendency to just want to figure out how things work in, in everyday life, including tools, but just but just more than that. And I think what the evolutionary biologist would do would say, so that, that's the starting point. That's what gave us our intelligence, our ability to understand cause and effect relationships, um, our interest in trying to figure out stuff. 
But then the evolutionary biologists, I think, would hand, hand over the task to uh, cultural evolutionary theorists to explain how we got so far beyond that and into areas that um, are not immediately related to evolutionary considerations. And then the cultural evolutionist would say that, um, that, that what's happened is that because we evolved this intelligence and this cultural capacity, we basically evolved the capacity to stockpile knowledge and then to add to this common pool of knowledge over time, slowly tinkering with it and slowly improving it over time um, in such a way that it just slowly adds up and adds up and adds up until we suddenly had knowledge that no single individual could possibly have pieced together by himself or herself. Um, and that, uh, you know, results in us having ideas in our head, in our heads that are many, many times more, um, they're vastly smarter than we are as individuals. And why do we need to reach for the heights of a symphony or an incredible piece of literature, you know, just to shift back from science to pure culture again with a capital C? What's yeah. opera all about? <laughs> um, I guess I, I said two things um, in response to that. So like a biological thing, an evolutionary biological thing, and, a, and a, just a cultural thing. One thing is because we've developed these ways of stimulating ourselves, um, it becomes almost like an independent motivation, somewhat disconnected from evolutionary impulses, like uh, opera or, or or rock music or whatever people happen to like, is just appealing in itself, um, and so people are motivated to do it just because it is stimulating. It stimulates our it stimulates our brains in ways that weren't evolutionarily sort of sketched out for us, but are still pleasurable. Um, but I do think on on top of that, um, a more basic impulse. We, we do have an impulse, most people, to impress each other. And the specifics of how we do that vary from culture to culture, and it depends on what's available in the culture. In some cultures, it might be opera, and others, it might be other, other stuff. Um, but I think we do have that impulse. And maybe to get back to sex differences, maybe on average, a uh, stronger impulse to show off among men than, than among women. Mm. And there may also be an in-group, out-group, thing there as well right True. like i was into this band before you heard of heard of them or you know yeah, I'm, I'm into guns and roses we're all here together we love guns and roses yep. we're all chanting along to guns and roses there's that's very tribal it would, yeah, true. Like sport yeah true and like the, the punks yeah. hate all the non-punks and the heavy metalers right yeah, yeah. right yeah <laughs> i mean i also wonder when i when i was reading your book and thinking about culture whether there's an analogy a little bit to what i was saying about sexuality where you, you need the dial turned up high enough that you get these artifacts that are unrelated to the original core purpose of the yeah. sex drive. And similarly, maybe our intelligence, we, you know, we've, we've maximized our sheer brain power and that has weird little sparks that branch off our, the utility of our intellect and into these other curious realms like Proust and yeah. <laughs> whatever else it might be that, that are kind of, that they're not, there's no direct evolutionary reason for them, but they're a byproduct of having really big brains that are useful for other things. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's quite a byproduct, right? Human culture. Yeah. It's just a byproduct. It's incredible. I wonder if, you know, so there are other species with some degree of culture, like, like chimpanzees. They have um, little bits and pieces of culture. They fish for termites and, and various other things, crack open nuts. Um, and I wonder if they have they have a little bit of that, a little bit of overflow from their cultural capacity. Um, in fact, I think they probably do, right? I, actually, I can think of an example with orangutans. Apparently, this, there are some orangutans where they, as they're 
nesting down to go to sleep, they blow raspberries at each other, just in one group, and they don't <laughs> they don't all do that. But just but just some do, and that's right. Probably an example of that. It's just about the highest form of culture for me. The fart <laughs> joke is uh, is a goodie, an yeah. oldie but a goodie. A trans species uh, humor. All these all these um, commonalities between species. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned AI. Yeah. Um, uh, some people think that you know, the next phase of human evolution or of the evolution of life will be us giving birth to uh, sufficiently complicated systems that they that it feels like something to be them, yeah. um, and that they could develop some kind of culture, some kind of instinct, some kind of uh, sense of life beyond ourselves. What do you make of that? I think a year ago, I would have been a lot more skeptical about all that kind of stuff than I am today. I've just been stunned by what GPT and, and the like has done in that space of time. And like I, so, so in terms of consciousness, right? So that's one thing you're talking about is like, could could machines have consciousness? Could there be something that it's like to be a computer or an AI? And I think I've, I've always thought that like in principle, there's no reason why not. So, so we're basically biological machines, and we're conscious. So, there's no imprint. Like, so I don't, I don't believe we have souls or anything that that make us conscious. I just think that we are matter, and matter organized in certain ways can be conscious. We're examples of that. I can't see any particular, in principle, reason to think that matter in the form of, of computers couldn't be conscious. I can't, I can't see why that would be the case. So, in principle, I think it could happen. You could have conscious computers. Yeah, could they evolve? Their own culture. I don't see why not. I don't see why not. What, what do you think? What, what are your thoughts on that? Because it's a, a very, very tricky question. I don't want to be too. Well, confident about I, it. I have, honestly haven't thought about the culture question until mm. this very instant. Um, but it depends on how you define culture. But if you define culture in the broadest possible sense, then any intelligent being is capable of culture. Yeah. Right? I mean, it, it, it's sort of a consequence of curiosity. And if uh, if a machine is truly aware, if a machine feels conscious, is sentient, then it will have curiosity and that will lead to ideas about things and ideas will lead to, yeah, to putting those ideas together, which is a form of writing and that is a form of literature and that will build a culture. Yeah. And I wonder, so I guess, I guess you could, I guess it would be culture if you had multiple AIs creating, yes, creating their own right. stuff and then sharing it with each other. And yes, then some right. kind of selection process that, that some of that is passed on to other AIs. And so you yep. have a cultural evolution between different AIs. I, I guess that would be most analogous to human culture. That's right, yes. And some of them would have to be stickier than others or, you know. Yep. So the, the AIs would have to be uh, exerting some kind of selection pressure on the various memes to make some succeed and others not yeah scary thought scary thought interesting crazy yeah let's leave it dangling there uh steve thank you uh thank you for chatting with me it's uh it's it's great to talk to you um is there anything that uh is there anything we haven't touched that is uh that is such such a juicy piece of fruit that you want to throw it in uh I don't, I don't think so. I think that w- that was actually quite a nice place to end it on with our random <laughs> speculation. <laughs> don't ruin it. Don't ruin <laughs> yeah. it. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Great but that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it.